0: everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Bourbon Showdown Podcast. My name is Jesse Jones, and on the show today, we have the Nelson Brothers, baby. That's right. Andy and Charlie Nelson join us on the Bourbon Showdown to talk about Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery. We're going to drink some of that good Nelson Brothers whiskey, some of that classic, some of that reserve, some of that Nelson's Greenbrier Handmade Sour Mash whiskey. Then what are we going to do? What are we going Going to do after that? You know what we're going to do. We do it every week on this show. We're going to talk about the whiskey, then we're going to drink the whiskey. It's a great conversation. It was a blast getting to know Andy and Charlie, learning more about their family, how their family goes back so far in Tennessee whiskey, and how they grew up not knowing any of that. It's a very cool conversation learning how they got into the business, how they kind of got to go back in time pick up where their great 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 grandfather left off and bring this brand Back into the 21st century So it's a cool conversation with them And I really appreciate Andy and Charlie For coming on the show It's been a great 2023 so far Back out on the road Doing the clubs Go to jessejonesonline.com Find out when I'm going to be doing comedy in your town Come see me Then we'll share a pour It'll be a great time You can also find out when I'm going to be in your town For whiskey tastings By going to the thebourbonshowdown.com I got a handful of those lined up I try to keep it to where if you come see a show I've probably got something whiskey related going on in that town at the same time so you can do two for one baby you can see me during the daytime, and we can share a drink then you can come see a show and guess what's going to happen after that we're probably going to share another drink it'll be fun either way and uh, we're going to get this thing started not going to do a lot of time up top today it's a fun conversation with Andy and Charlie we do ask that you guys go do all the things we ask you to do hit like and subscribe On uh, Instagram, on YouTube, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio. We're everywhere. But for right now, it's time to get this show started. It's the Bourbon Showdown Podcast. My name's Jesse Jones, it's Andy and Charlie Nelson. Let's start the show. Thank you guys for coming on the show. We have Charlie and Andy Nelson, the Nelson brothers. They're coming to us from the deliciousness that is Greenbrier Distillery. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, glad to be here. Um, I'm I'm a bit of a whis- whiskey history buff, so I was excited to talk to you guys. Uh, you've got whiskey in your veins and your family is steeped in it. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, just give everybody a little uh, sense of the history that goes back in your family and, and Greenbrier and and just all the way back. Yeah,
1: well, Charlie, you're usually pretty good at this, but I do appreciate the um, uh, the literal and the metaphorical whiskey in our veins and <laughs> being steeped in it because they're both kind of true, depending on the hour of the day. Best <laughs> job to have. That's right.
2: Uh, so yeah, I mean, there there there's a long, rich history behind Nelson's Greenbrier distillery. and and it turns out that we had whiskey running through our veins before we even knew it. Um, but, uh, you know, our family's company was originally started by Andy and I's great, great, great triple great grandfather uh charles nelson who uh you know came over to america with nothing but the clothes on his back in 1850 he was born in germany on the 4th of july no less which uh, i just love that fact (laughs) and um you know their family made it to america with nothing but the clothes on their backs and charles made soap and candles in new york
0: But they literally came over with just the clothes on their back because all of the money that they were going to bring over with them, their father had like to just to be safe. He thought he was being precautionary and he had he melted all of their valuables and wore it like like uh, like a safe around his neck.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So uh, and, and I've actually uh, recently gotten a little bit more detail on what it would have been like. Um, and I, I can go into that. But, you know, you may learn with me. I don't have very many short stories. Hey, so. I,
0: I love long stories. Those are the best kind.
2: <laughs> nice. Uh, well, yeah. So so Charles, his father owned a soap and candle factory in Hagenau, Germany. And in 1850, sold it to move the family to America. So he had the proceeds in gold sewn into his clothing. And it turns out that like, um, I, I, um, well, I'll come back to this in just a second. So gathers up the family, wife and six kids, and they board a ship named the Helena Sloman, which turns out it was like the first German steamship to make the transatlantic journey. And um, you know, hi- other passengers uh, included Heinrich J. Heinz, who started the Heinz Company, Heinrich Steinweg, who started Steinway Pianos. Um, We learned this from the History Channel, but um, (laughs) (laughs) but they didn't talk about Charles Nelson. Uh, But while they were at sea, there were severe storms. The ship was damaged, taking on water for a couple of days going down. And there's a nearby ship named the Devonshire comes to rescue the passengers. And our family was on a little safety boat being ferried to the Devonshire. The safety boat capsized and the father with the family's fortune and gold on his person went straight to the bottom of the Atlantic. And, um,
0: which I mean of all best laid plans, you know, like he sits there and and he's got this golden shirt on for the majority of the journey, just, just, and then at the end of the day, I mean, that's insane. It's funny.
1: I always, I always think about the modern day equivalent of, you know, you watch the Oscars and beforehand they'll show, the accountant walking in with the briefcase of the votes, you know, handcuffed to his wrist. Right. Like, right. It's not quite as cool, but,
0: uh, <laughs> well, I it, guess by today's standards, there would be like, um, I took all of my Bitcoin and I put it in my pocket. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then I sunk in cyberspace.
1: So many iPhones lining my pockets. <laughs> so, so I actually, uh,
2: met and, and spoke with a guy who, um, has a business that does, um, like deep sea exploration. And, uh, they were one of the leading sort of companies that, uh, at like discovering sunken treasures, they don't do that anymore. But, uh, I, Told him a little bit about our story. He was like, "Oh yeah, yeah. I, we've found multiple." He, he was saying that it was most likely actually a vest with like multiple chambers that would be, you know, underneath the rest of the clothing, and so you could have you know little pockets all throughout and. and like that everything.
0: episode of The Simpsons where they go to the candy festival. <laughs> He he
1: just had picture. Yeah, yeah, I I picture Walter Sobchak's hunting vest from the Big Lebowski.
0: (laughs) Oh, man. So so the family comes over here. They were going to be taken care of. Now, not only are they out of the fortune, but they're also down a patriarch. So what did he do?
2: So uh, um, Charles was the oldest. He was 15 at the time. And his his mother uh, passed away soon after from pneumonia, I believe. Oh, wow. And uh, so he was essentially like taking care of, you know, his younger brothers and sisters. And he found work at the Hayes and Schultz firm, soap and candle manufacturers. That's what he knew how to do in New York. And he worked there for two years. Then uh, he moved to Cincinnati where there was a large German population and, uh, you know, made uh, he became a butcher there in Cincinnati. And then he he made friends with a distiller because the pigs that he was butchering were being fed by spent mash from a nearby distillery. So uh, he became friends with that distiller and learned about the production of whiskey. And then he moved to Nashville. Uh, around 1858, and started a wholesale grocery business where he had three great-selling products: coffee, meat, and whiskey. Um, All whiskey you really
0: beans. need when you think about it, right?
2: It's still true. It's as this good day. as breakfast,
0: lunch, and dinner. Yeah, you're there.
2: That's right. It's kind of my diet these days. It seems. <laughs> um, But, uh, you know, his his best selling product there at the wholesale
0: grocery business was his whiskey. I think it's interesting, too, that you forget just how agricultural whiskey started, like like now that we're farm to table again we're seeing that rebirth of, yes, there is agriculture right next to the whiskey, right next to the crops, but that it's by design now. And back then it was by necessity where nothing was wasted and everything that they had went to something. And the animals being in the middle was just basically so nothing got wasted.
1: Right. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's how much of an agricultural product it really is. I mean, people don't often think about that, particularly, uh, you know, say it comes time to, uh, maybe get some funding from government from like as a member of the Tennessee distillers guild for example i'm i'm well involved in that and so we deal with you know in politics and legislation and all that stuff and and how tied in it is to the to the agricultural industry it's like it, it's pretty cool
0: it especially today because now and we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit but the politics play into your family's history a little bit as well yeah yeah So you were talking uh, about the there's coffee, there's meat, there is whiskey, and there's your uh, triple distilled grandfather.
2: Yeah. (laughs) That's right. And so so he was one of the first to bottle and sell whiskey rather than selling it by the barrel or the jug. So his whiskey was his best selling product. And, you know, because a lot easier to walk away with a bottle than a 500 pound barrel or, you know, big heavy
0: jug. And that's kind Uh, of huge for that time frame, too, because everybody was just um, barrel in the center of town and people come up for a dram, you know, so that's, that's pretty huge.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it was he was basically bottling all of the whiskey being made at this distillery 20 miles north of Nashville. It was called the Greenbrier Distillery. And so he bought it and renamed it Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery. He also bought a a patent for improved distillation, the H.H. Kirk patent and expanded it and became by far the largest distillery in the state of Tennessee. And it was known as old number five because it was registered distillery number five, which the federal government recognized and gave us that historic designation.
0: That's awesome. You were able to get that back. Mm -hmm. That's huge.
2: Yeah. So we're, we're, we're pumped about that. And, um, yeah. And, you know, he he produced essentially the original Tennessee whiskey and, um, you know, it was one of the largest, most popular brands around, by far the largest in Tennessee. By 1885, we were selling nearly two million bottles a year, which is crazy in 1885. Yeah. And I mean, I mean that was weird. the
0: market. You guys were a predominant share of the market at that time. That That's that's just crazy.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And and so we were we were producing, you know, Tennessee whiskey, bourbon, rye whiskey, corn whiskey, apple brandy, peach brandy, even gin. We actually produced one of the first bottled American gins, which is kind of crazy. But um, yeah. And then so Charles, he died in 1891. And that's when his wife Louisa took over as one of the only women to run a distillery back in the day. And. I mean, we're incredibly proud of Louisa and, and want to celebrate her story and, and her history and everything. And you know, one of the only women to run a distillery. Um, we, we named a product after her, Louisa's liqueur. Coffee caramel pecan liqueur is delicious. That sounds tasty. Uh, yeah, we named our still after her and we do the Louisa Nelson Awards every year where we honor three women in the middle Tennessee area that are making a difference in the community. Oh, That's awesome. Yeah. And so uh, she was anyway, she was kind of ahead of her time in terms of marketing. And she she ran the distillery until uh, statewide prohibition hit Tennessee in 1909,
0: forcing us to close our doors. And now uh, Tennessee, a little bit ahead of the curve on that one. You guys started prohibition years ahead of the rest of the country, didn't you?
1: Unfortunately, yeah. that's I do. I say the same thing. I mean, like, that's the way that's one of the few ways in which Tennessee was well, uh, well ahead of the of its time in the very worst of ways.
0: (laughs) So now in prohibition time, some distilleries were able to stay afloat by, uh, getting a pharmaceutical license. I know that was, uh, kept a few people afloat in Kentucky. Was there similar, uh, was there similar prescription whiskey in Tennessee?
1: You know, or was it just out? There probably was. But this this is kind of an interesting thing. This is me just kind of speculating, but it kind of makes sense. So my my thinking is that, yeah, there were certain other smaller distilleries that were kind of when statewide prohibition hit Tennessee, they were able to kind of hop around to different states that that still you know, distilling was elite was still legal and uh, but Greenbrier was so big at the time. It wasn't really practical. I mean, it was so physically large. It wasn't practical to move to another state because I mean, who knows, maybe it was just expensive or maybe they saw prohibition coming in those states anyway, or, or whatever right. it was, but it was kind of, a Band-Aid. The, yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's, you know, kind of one of these big ironies that it was, was the big one of its time, but um, but it was so, it was so big that prohibition just totally took it down where others could have, kind of they were a little more nimble and, and able to kind of skirt around it and
0: so after life. prohibition it it just sort of it, it traded hands a few times and just slowly faded away or no uh, well, it, not, it, not it
1: just, even really it just it just it pretty abruptly faded away i mean i guess there was a little bit of it never really traded hands so what happened was um when it shut down from prohibition you know, what we did was they, they took the remaining barrel inventory. They were just, they were just made to stop producing, but they had all these barrels sitting in inventory. And so what they did was they had an actual uh, uh, facility up in Louisville uh, at 100 East main street on what's now like, you know, the very corner of whiskey row in downtown Louisville. And they basically sold the remaining barrels out of that office in Louisville Uh, until they were out. And that was really then the end, the proper end of the business. And so the cool, I mean, I don't know if it's, if it's cool or not, but it was at least practical and good for the family at the time was that they didn't have to get into bootlegging or anything like that because Charles, before he died, you know, he was, he was, you know, doing well enough that he, he invested in a handful of, ventures, one of which was a bank. And so the family had gotten into banking. And so that's what they were able to do once prohibition hit and they were no longer able to make whiskey was they became bankers. So I I say it's maybe not that cool because it would have been a cooler story to just say, yeah, then they went illegal, but uh, they put on their suits and then went to the bank and that was
0: it. It's such a funny parallel to today, isn't it? Where so many of these craft brands get started because some dude was in banking and got tired of that. And now he's a craft distiller where uh, your great-great-great-grandfather was like, all right, first comes the whiskey, then we'll do other things. Yeah, it's true. I hadn't
1: thought about it that way, but that's pretty interesting. Yeah, that's funny.
0: So after the brand goes, uh, uh, after the brand gets prohibitioned, uh, and there are generations of just family going and doing well for themselves and other avenues and and yeah, children and grandchildren and grandchildren drank and until finally you guys. So how did you did you did you know growing up that your family was steeped in this or was it like a uh, you found out by accident? Like, how did you two become aware of the heritage?
1: was uh, so depending on which of us you ask uh it's it's a little bit of both of those so uh, I only say that because I am I'm only 16 months older than Charlie but it's important because in this specific context there's one way in which I somewhat remember in air quotes um something about or, or kind of knew what, we did back in those days. And what I mean by that is I, I just have this memory of being I think it was about seven years old because we were in Nashville, we were at home and it was Christmas Eve and we had a bunch of family over for dinner and our dad is sitting at the, the head of the table. He's probably on his third glass of wine and he, you know, he was a storyteller uh, and very much of the ilk to not let the truth get in the way of a good story. And so he's telling this story, a, a pretty vague story, but this pretty fantastical one as well of someone in our family, our, you know, our ancestor um, falling off the boat with the family fortune and gold sewn into his clothing. Um, You know, I was seven years old. I don't remember what other details he had uh, going on in that story, but what I remember is not really believing it because as a seven-year-old, I was not fully cognizant of the notion of not letting the truth get in the way of a good story because what does it matter? It's just a story. Right. And so, because my mom, mom would always tease dad about like embellishing his stories. And so I would take that literally. And so I just thought that dad was making shit up, <laughs> you know, when he'd tell his stories. So that was my context. But the point is, the seed was planted of that knowledge, or at least the idea that we had some, you know, whiskey ancestry. Now, dad didn't know really much more beyond what he told us himself. Really? And so, yeah, yeah. Uh, the only other thing I can remember vaguely is every now and then <clears throat> we'd have, you know, a great uncle at some, you know, at a family reunion, just, you know, wistfully say, yeah, if only we could find that old spring, maybe we could get the, the family business back up and running the old whiskey business. But I didn't know as a kid, I didn't. Right. You like don't I put two two to,
0: together like that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that's that's kind of my response. I mean, I know Charlie, you didn't really have much memory of that dinner or at least that particular part of that dinner. Cause you were five and a half, six years old. Right.
2: Yeah. I mean, I remember hearing the story of the gold, but I don't remember hearing anything about the whiskey business, but, um, what, what happened was 16 years ago in 2006, almost 17 years ago, our dad went in with three of his buddies to buy a cow. Worth the meat from a butcher. It all comes back to the butcher, you know. Um, and uh, you know, we're he invited us to go with him and our mom, I think. And and we're on our way to this butcher 20 miles north in Greenbrier, Tennessee. And we running low on fuel, we stopped to fill up. And at the gas station, there's this historical marker that says Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery, one mile east on Long Branch Road. Charles Nelson opened the Greenbrier Distillery. Like, I mean, just
0: serendipity a little bit, you know, like that's like uh, you're talking about something that sounds that is a that is your story. That is a uh, fricking movie moment. Totally,
2: totally. Yeah. And, and so, well, that, that was just like priming the pump for the real movie moment, which uh, <laughs> so we, we go on to the butcher. He lives a mile east. We ask him if he knows anything about the old distillery. He's like, well, hell. You know, look across the street. We walk across the streets. His old barrel warehouse still standing. The original spring still running. Drank from the spring. And then he sends us to a nearby historical society where there were two original bottles of our Greenbrier, Tennessee whiskey. Oh, wow. With our name on.
0: No, no. I'm, I'm picturing this in my mind. Like you guys walk up and there's like some old dude like, oh, yeah, I remember the old Greenbrier, <laughs> the Stella, eh? right up the road on the left. <laughs> So it was not
1: terribly unlike that, except it wasn't this, you know, this old bearded man in overalls or anything. It was it was this little old blue haired lady sitting in the in the Greenbrier (laughs) Historical Society, because the first room you walk into is a library. As you know, and it's you know, it's uh, not even joking here. It's like you know, paper book romance novels that you can rent for a nickel or whatever, um, it, you know, just a small town. And so that's kind of what it was. And this sweet old lady. And she, she made a comment at some point. I don't remember if this was, if it was this visit or, or, you know, a subsequent visit, but there was some point at which she made the comment that Charlie could probably run for the mayor uh, run for the position of mayor within the town and get elected on, on name recognition alone being Charles Nelson, you know, cause everybody in the town of Greenbrier knows that name because of the distillery. I mean, that's, that's really why the town exists now in the modern day. So uh, I just found that pretty funny.
0: And the, the, were you guys just completely taken aback? Like, like you, you, the only thing the family knew about it or the only thing you guys had heard about it so far was something about a vest and something about a spring. So all of this had to just be like, are we in the right place? Is this the same Nelson's?
1: Yeah. I, well, we, yeah, we didn't know if, you know, we had some vague notion of a, a whiskey thing up in Greenbrier and we didn't even know at that point where Greenbrier was until we went to go, pick up that meat from the butcher. And so it was like, we was it legal? Was it even really a whiskey thing? How big was it? Anything. And so, yeah, when we found out that not only are there still bottles remaining, I mean, there were empty bottles, but intact, beautiful bottles. And like Charlie said, with our name on it, it was like, wow. But then we we do all this other research and learn that it was the biggest in the state of Tennessee responsible for really essentially creating the category of Tennessee whiskey as we know it today. So that was, that was wild.
0: Yeah. I I can only imagine. So what did you guys do with that information? Like what were you doing at the time you learned this? Well,
1: I was doing video or no, actually. Yeah. That summer I was, it was a little bit of both. So uh, I was at that summer doing um, an internship with the country music association. quickly learning that I frankly wanted nothing to do with the the country music business here in Nashville, uh, <laughs> at least not on the business side of it. Um, and then I was also doing to actually earn money, um, teaching myself video editing, uh, for a software publishing company. Okay. And Charlie's still, you were still in college. You still had a semester left.
2: Yeah. I, I still had a semester of college left and, um, I had, um, Been traveling around a lot um, and just wanted to really figure out a way to to continue to to fund my uh, desire to travel. Um, And I had taken some time off from school and, um, you know, I had one semester left of college. And, you know, when we discovered this, it was it was right before that last semester. Um, So perfect uh, timing for you. Yeah, so I you know, I I ended up taking one business class um and uh wrote of course a brilliant business plan um <laughs> in 2006 and you know it, it, there was a line that was like in 2013 take over the world. Um, <laughs> uh,
0: and so you step know step one make whiskey step yeah. two profit.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. And um so I mean it, it, we're we're a little bit behind we haven't taken over the world quite yet but uh <laughs> but yeah so wrote this business plan and then as soon as I graduated um moved back to Nashville um and started working on um you know, doing research, planning, building a team. Um, You know, we went around to pretty much all of the distilleries in Tennessee and Kentucky, uh, met with a lot of folks that were running the big distilleries there, and a lot of them knew a little bit about our family and our our company history, and were willing to come and work with us. That's Um, awesome.
0: Well, the industry's always been, I I feel, very inviting, especially with uh, you two who would have been considered, you know, part of uh, the OGs of the of the game. So I could see them especially wanting to, you know, embrace you guys and help you kind of get back into it.
1: Yeah, I mean, there were it it was pretty amazing because, you know, with any industry, the people, the sales folks on the ground and, you know, on the shelves of liquor stores, whole different universe. But as far as like the production people and people really in the business kind of aspect of it, couldn't have been nicer, just very, very helpful. And, you know, one of the things like you mentioned, we were kind of early on in it was that it helped some of the people who really had long histories in the business had at least heard something about our family distillery. Now they probably knew, certainly no more than we did initially. But it, I think gave them a notion that we're not like just some dumbasses here to like make a buck, you know, we really want right. to do this because it's in our family. And so we're earnestly trying to find this out and get as much information as we can. And so we, you know, it's funny seeing uh, all the number of people that we talked to from the various distilleries and, you know, depending on the, the individual's background, what information they give us, whether they were uh, able to to glean that we were merely laymen or they just thought we knew everything. I mean, there was one guy uh, who was a real production guy, like a chemistry nerd guy. And he, I mean, this is like one of the first guys we ever met with. And he talked so far over our heads about the specifics of, you know, how to propagate yeast and all of these things. I'm like, there are things that we're not even doing yet today. And we've been running a distillery for eight years. And so it's just like such high level stuff. I was like, man, (laughs) we got a lot to learn, but it was, it was a really, it was a good lesson to learn that they're, you know, sort of not knowing how much you don't know.
0: Well, and, and so on top of that, like on top of going around and meeting everybody, did you guys, who trained you, like who trained you up on everything?
1: Well, the first guy that we met Um, One of the first people that we met actually was uh, Rob Sherman at Vendome Copper and Brass in Louisville, who, you know, they build distills for for so many really great distilleries. And Rob put us in touch with he gave us a couple names um, of people who may be willing to help us out and kind of work with us, Almost you know, consultants, really. And those two names, well, the first name he he gave us that that we met with was uh, Lincoln Henderson. And we met with Lincoln in, uh, I guess it was whatever year, 2007, eight, something like that. And we just met with him in the lobby of a, you know, little hotel outside of Louisville or something and just kind of told him our story and what we knew about it. And he was, uh, he was very excited for us and thought it was very cool. And so we had this nice long conversation at the end of it. He kind of said, well, you know, guys, I think this is, really cool and i definitely wish you the best of luck uh it's very exciting i don't know that i'm going to be able to help you past this um you know happy to have a phone call here and there but um i'm i'm about to start you know embarking on something with my son wes that's not mm-hmm. terribly dissimilar to this and of course then that was angel's envy <laughs> right uh and so he did pretty well with that as well um and then, but of course, you know, before he was the master distiller for Brown Foreman, I think yep. entirely. So a good pedigree in the business. And, but then the, the second guy that Rob had introduced us to was Dave Pickerel, uh, who was, Man. you know, just coming off a stint uh, as makers, Mark, master distiller.
0: Yeah. He just shot you guys straight up to the top two in the industry. Yeah. Two, well, two of the top two in the industry. But
2: think, think about it at that time there were maybe a dozen distilleries in the country making whiskey. Right. And, and, and nobody else was, or, well, I can't say nobody, but like this was before the, the boom had happened. So like, you know, now there's what, like 2,500 distilleries, right. Right. something. And so when, like, I this think this was that,
0: 2007, 2008.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Like
0: so yeah. yeah, you guys would have been before a lot of the people that didn't get started until, uh, 11 and 12, you you know, the, once the the smell was in the air of what was coming.
1: Yeah. I mean, being now 2022, it's, you think about a lot, of some of these companies like the, the, the older craft distilleries. Yeah. They're maybe 10 years old at this point, that's the older ones. And so this was two or three years before that even, but it was tough. So we, anyway, we met with Dave, um, you know on fourth street live down at the, at the you know back room of the makers lounge in in downtown louisville and you know he uh we told him his our story and and he was in he wanted to help us and we were he at that point only had one client that he was working with so far at that point and that was uh kentucky bourbon distillers or Willett distillery uh, right. helping them out with some stuff and so we were very excited and you know it took us well, we thought we were going to be able to, you know, again, we were, I was what, 24 years old at this point, Charlie, 22, 23. So fresh out of college, you know, we, and by the way, we were both um, philosophy students. Like our, our degree was in humanities with a philosophy concentration. So like, we were not hardcore business dudes, um, nor
0: finance geeks or anything.
1: Right. No, no. Uh, And so, What we thought was that uh, raising money was going to be the easy part. And then the hard part was going to be building the thing and and making the whiskey. And so, as it turns out, raising money is the hardest thing either of us have probably ever done. I don't want to speak for you, Charlie, but pretty sure I do. Uh, And so basically, long story short with Dave, uh, we were able to pay him three months uh, for three months on a retainer. And then we just ran out of money because we didn't have any raised yet. And oh, wow. so he was kind enough to, he was like, you know, guys, I got to take on other clients and uh, and everything anyway. But as we were kind of falling behind that fundraising uh, race with other other businesses, you know, he went on and took other clients, but he still kept in touch with us. And so by the time we were able to raise our money, he was all, you know, all in and he helped Waiting us. Waiting in the wings yeah, helped us, you know, build the distillery source from the various vendors that he knew because of course we didn't, we didn't know anything. And so, and then once it got built,
0: he, he trained,
1: uh, trained me on how to actually make the whiskey.
0: Uh, That's, I mean, you could not have picked a better person. I mean, just one of the, one of the greatest to ever play the game, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and kind of had a
2: philosophy at the beginning that, uh, and still try to that we we want to be the dumbest people in the room at all times (laughs) you know and uh you know because we we didn't know what we didn't know and and we wanted to surround ourselves with people that are a lot more knowledgeable and experienced than us and so uh you know dave and, and, and others for that matter really helped you know fill that that void for us
0: that's the smartest thing you could have done Like you would have been doing a disservice to the long term brand if you had tried to go in and say no 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 I know how to propagate (laughs) like like that would have (laughs) it would have been very quick a lot of money could have been spent had you not gone the course you did and 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 train yourself up before you got into some of that higher distilling practice for sure it
1: helps to not be a died in the wool egomaniac from the start too so I'm thankful for that (laughs) I,
0: I think humble will help you in most walks of life, especially when you're trying to start something where you, you're you not going to know everything right out of the gate, uh, which is impressive because of where both of you were age-wise, you could have very easily gone the other way. Like I like you, you guys obviously remember 22, 23. I remember 22, 23. I'm sure for like half of the things you're told, there's another half where you're like, yeah, I know how to do that. So oh, the I can't fact that you stand guys,
1: talking to people in their young twenties now. Oh man, They're the worst. I, uh-uh, uh-uh.
0: <laughs> I, um, there was what? Well, there was a thing recently where uh, a buddy of mine got divorced, and he was like, "Oh my god, I went on the date with a 23-year-old. It was the worst." I, I, like, like she thought Britney Spears is where <laughs> music came from. I was like, ah, I, I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. It just sounds, it just sounds hard. <laughs> yeah. So you guys get into it and now you also have, did you taste the whiskey that you had found? Like, like when you, there were two bottles of the Nelson Greenbrier from back in the day. Did you guys have a reference point for what you wanted to make? Or did you just want to make good whiskey?
1: Uh, we we just wanted to make good whiskey. We did not taste it uh, because those the two original bottles we found were empty. There was nothing in them.
0: Oh, okay, um, okay. I, I misunderstood that. I thought you had found, like, these uh, gleaming, uh, chalices of, of oh, <laughs> gleaming chalices of 100-year-old liquid. Uh, they were gleaming
1: chalices of 100-year-old empty glass with old labels <laughs> on them. Uh, so you're close, <laughs> but
2: yeah. We... we We have since found some old original bottles that are full though.
1: Oh, okay.
0: So where did you want to go? It's,
1: it's this big, it's not even an argument. It's just this conversation that is kind of ongoing because to me, there's something to the mystery partially uh, of not having it, you know, and there's also, I, there's just a few things. I mean, you know, There, there's actually, you know, the bottles had natural corks in them. And so those are fully dried out. And so if, right. if we tried to screw the cork, out, it's just going to turn to dust and like get into the liquid. So that's like a particular challenge we have as well. But I don't know. We're, we're we've considered a handful of things, you know, trying to, you know, opening up an old bottle and, you know, for charity or something like that right and we'll see how that goes but uh but i don't know there's that there's that mystery that is always kind of exciting
0: that's a fair point too uh you the mystique the romance surrounding the previous liquid that also can keep from hindering you you know what i mean like it could be a fool's errand to try to recreate something that was made with different practices at a different time a different way uh set your own path kind of mentality and so though so-
2: just to to add on there, though, that we we did actually find some original recipes, if you can call it that. So, right. um, you know, we spent a couple of years in like Tennessee State Archives and everything. And, and um, you know, I'm sure, you know, you probably uh, remember microfiche, maybe. <laughs> right. Uh, right. And um you know, we advertised in the newspaper, in multiple newspapers, just about every day. And there were stories written about the Greenbrier Distillery all the time and about Charles Nelson and stuff. And so, um, anyway uh every year they would have a big picnic at the distillery it was a big to-do and there were articles always written about it and um you know the who's who of nashville society would come and and folks would come down from chicago come over from memphis and any you know everything like that and so uh they would do a big tour of the distillery and one year um Going on a tour and the head of production goes through and leads the group and goes through the whole process step by step. First, we grind up 103 bushels of corn, cook it at 212 degrees, then we cool it down, add in 28 bushels of wheat and so on and so forth by step and there's a journalist on the tour he's making <laughs> up
1: those numbers by the way
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. for anyone trying to fake, fake no, no 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 and then
0: what what after that what is, there's the court and then there's the what <laughs>
2: <laughs> but so so there was a journalist on the tour wrote it down and published it in the newspaper as part of a broader story oh no so we we found that and um So that's kind of what we've used to to guide our our Greenbrier, Tennessee whiskey.
0: Oh, that's amazing. So so that's so funny, because back in the day, that was just that wasn't a family secret or anything. I feel like today uh, somebody publishes. I don't know. Everybody's pretty open with their mash bill these days, but that's that's cool. So you found it through public record.
2: Yeah. And yeah. Um, I mean, and, and at the time, like we talked to Dave about it and stuff, and he was like, this is really interesting because he was like, at the time, really, there were only a few different mash bills even being used at all. And like and so, you know, a lot of people were trying were like, I don't know, copying each other or whatever. But but there's also even like just the mash bill isn't like the biggest sort of um right, contrib- right. contributor to the overall flavor profile there's so, like even if you have all of the exact same equipment and the same mash bill everything but you're making it, it wherever you know at your house or whatever and right we're making it in our house like Ultimately, the micro environments, the micro climates are going to be different and and ultimately we'll end up with a very different product, even if we're starting with the same basic raw materials. Totally.
0: I I think that's the beauty of whiskey uh, altogether is that every especially now that it's kind of broadened into more states is that the geography and the the environment and where the barrels age, everything plays into that final flavor profile.
1: Was as the production nerd in the room, I've got to give a big shout out to my old buddy yeast for being uh, a big contributor to that as well. I'd I'd argue (laughs) that yeast is probably more important than even the the grain bill um, or or a lot of those things because it can. I mean, there's virtually infinite strains of yeast that you can use. Some produce a lot of alcohol, some don't. You know, you can use you know multiple strains of yeast. Sometimes they work well together. Sometimes they just kind of fight with each other and don't produce much alcohol or flavor. So yeah, it's all, uh, it's all out there, but it's a lot of it is just trial and error. To be honest, I, I I bet that a lot of times back in those days, anyway, I would would think that maybe part of the, the reason for, you know, not tons of different mash bills is just like, you know, tried and true. Someone used this mash bill, you know, I like their product. Let's go with that.
0: Well I mean for the longest time that was how recipes got handed down you know it was like this is how sure. uh, my grandfather did it and then he gave it to me and I did did it this way and then it kind of went through the family uh so you guys get started did you so did you how long before you were able to go to market uh cuz you're a new business you obviously need capital you 2007 2008 when did you I'm getting ahead of myself I guess how did you reclaim the distillery? Did you go back to Greenbrier? Did you go find the same plot that you were on originally?
1: Um, Yeah. So, well, the way that that worked really was when we, we found this in 2006. I mean, that was the original plot that was on, started trying to, you know, build the business plan, trying to raise money, et cetera, took forever to raise money, ended up talking to Dave, you know, kind of engaging him. And then it was really on to, to fully try to raise that money. But in the meantime, uh, we were still trying to tweak our business plan kind of based on what these potential investors were telling us or asking us, really. Right. And so what we found through that process was that, you know, it's obviously just going to take such a large amount of money to build a full distillery, all that overhead. And what we then found was that quite common practice in not only the distilling industry, but every other industry, too, is that uh, whether you call it sourcing or I guess in the in like groceries, they'll call it white labeling. Mm -hmm. But you know, sourcing whiskey was a possibility. And there are plenty of distilleries across the country that will produce bulk spirits that you can purchase, you know, barrels in bulk. Of course. Blend to your to your heart's content and figure out your own flavor profile and brand and everything. And that really opened our eyes and and frankly allowed that idea allowed us to really get the business started when we were kind of at a standstill just because we couldn't raise any effing money
0: it's the only option you had like there's no scenario where you were going to be able to put stuff in the barrel with no nothing to start with uh yeah yeah there's nothing wrong with it at all like some of the best juice out there is coming from people that are it's your pick it's what you liked you're still putting your stamp on the whiskey you bought
2: we were basically at a crossroads. We had been trying to raise money every single day for two years straight, being told no every single day, banging our heads against a wall. and we ultimately realized that the only way that we were gonna be able to move forward was to put up everything that we owned to personally guarantee a loan to get started. And we actually went to pretty much every bank in town. And even with us personally guaranteeing everything with quite literally everything that we owned as collateral, banks still wouldn't lend us the money. Wow. And and there was one bank uh, or one banker in particular, that um, he sat in on one of our pitches. And then a few months later, they denied us. And a few months later, he called me and he said, hey, I moved to a new bank and I've got a higher up position. I've got a little bit more say. I believe in y'all. I know that y'all are going to be successful and let's talk. And so he and his bank ultimately loaned us the money then we were able to, you know, start buying some barrels and actually got to give a, a shout out to a guy that we worked with early on, which was Richard Wolf. Uh, he just passed recently. And and mm-hmm. so um, but he would actually come to our parents' house with a briefcase full of samples from multiple different barrels, you know, different mash bills, different yeast strains at different ages from multiple different distilleries.
0: So you guys have been very fortunate that so many people like you you've had a a variety of just amazing people on board uh helping you guys reclaim your your family birthright a little bit
2: yeah for sure and we we've been very fortunate and and um and yeah they like the people in this industry are, are just you know some of the best there are in my opinion but um yeah so so Richard you know he would come this doesn't happen anymore by the way if if right right <laughs> <the> Brokers <laughs> do not carry samples in their briefcases and well maybe they do but they're not like making house calls you know like at best you might get a, a phone call or an email saying like hey I've got this you've got 24 hours you
1: know yeah it is point, it is no longer the 19. 19- it wasn't even the 1930s when this happened, (laughs) by the way, this wasn't like 2009.
0: So, right. Well, but to your point, you guys were ahead of everybody. Like there's so many people vying for attention now that, yeah, you would have to like make an appointment and go to him. But at the time you guys were doing it, uh, whiskey was still not back up and running at the strength that they are now. It was still vodka's game in the time period you're talking about.
1: Yeah, Yeah, that's right. It was, I will just say real quick, Charlie, uh, It's kind of amazing the samples that Richard would bring us. He brought some that were, you know, 13, 14, 15. I think we saw like a 22-year-old bourbon sample or maybe even a rye sample, but like from MGP. And that they no longer have that. I mean, it's been years since something that old has been in their inventory. So just... You know, the the big boom in craft distilling so many people have sourced from there and taken up all that inventory. It's like that's long gone, but it's so crazy to think now of the the prices that were being offered for the old age products. I'm like, if only we could go back in time and you know, we didn't have enough money to or sense to realize what a good deal that was at the time or what a good deal that would become.
0: You're right in the time period where, yes, there were, I can only imagine the, the, uh, the things that you guys were probably offered. Cause I mean, there's a lot of sweet things happening in that time period in terms of the liquid you guys are getting to choose from.
2: But yeah, so, I mean, it it also was during a very, you know, the recession, which was a pretty big deal. So Mm -hmm. not a lot of people had a lot of cash. Um, but uh, you know, we had ultimately to choose, okay, do we either put up everything that we own to guarantee a loan and start sourcing barrels and put out a whiskey brand? Or mm-hmm. do we try and build a really small distillery and start putting out either some moonshine or vodka or gin or something that doesn't right. have to age? And we were like, well, we want to be a whiskey company. So like that'd be confusing if we... Our first product is not a whiskey, so Completely. that's when, yeah, uh, we decided to go down the 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 whiskey path and sourcing, and uh, we're able to get a product to market in March of 2012, and um, and at that point things started to to go, and at as soon as we sold our first bottle uh, and got a little bit of press. Um, people started coming and writing checks. We were able to raise some money, build out our own distillery, uh, start laying down barrels. Uh, actually this is, so, uh, I I can't help, but, uh, you know, think about anytime when we, uh, talk about just the first barrel that we laid down, which was, uh, August 16th of 2014. Um, Oh, wow. Yeah. So, uh, August sixteenth, twenty fourteen, we laid down our first barrel of Greenbrier Tennessee whiskey, um, and you know what they, was that they, moment
0: they, like? That had to be a very cool moment for the two of you.
1: Uh, yeah, it was super cool. I was actually just talking to someone a few hours ago about that day and just realizing, you know, for one, it was like this part of, oh my god, our our dreams are coming true; it's finally happening. But then also the okay, well, only at least four more years to go, you know? And it was just like, all right, well, here we just sit and wait. And so it was tough, but, you know, I know, I know where Charlie's going with this. And so this is uh, a bit more context and, and color around how that first day went uh, and how it's gone the last eight years.
2: Yeah. Uh, um, so I, I remember after we filled that first barrel of smoking a cigar outside with Dave and just, I mean, I, couldn't stop smiling but it's the coolest moment in the world oh yeah and um yeah it was it was amazing and so but you know they they so we laid out our first barrel august 16 2014 and you know they call what evaporates from the barrel the angels share right um and so uh we uh like go on and and grow the business and and our, our dad was a a huge part of helping, you know, bring the business back to life and one of our biggest cheerleaders and and as um as I like to say he bleed, he would bleed green and um but anyway, uh he he actually he passed on August 16th of 2021. And Andy and I were were there with him. And, you know, we, right after it happened, you know, we're there hugging and crying. And it hit me. I was like, that golly. Of course. He had, he went on the f- seventh anniversary of the first barrel being laid down. He could not wait to get up there and enjoy his angel's share. <laughs> and so, um, you know, that, uh, that made me feel a little bit uh, better, just chuckle. And, and, uh, you know, when, when he went, he was wearing a a Greenbrier pin on his shirt, wearing a Greenbrier shirt. And, um, so anyway, uh, it's fantastic. Yeah. And we tasted, uh, this year on, uh, August 16th, uh, I think barrel number one and maybe even barrel number four, uh, we just took some samples and and cheers to him and and his spirit and I gotta tell you it was remarkably delicious.
1: I it's funny because I that's why I was telling someone about it. Someone was at my house today and and they came across we had I had these little bottles, these little samples from those barrels on that day on the eighth birthday of barrel number one and barrel number four was four days shy of its eighth birthday at that time of that sample and barrel number four was at it was filled at 125 proof uh but it at nearly at seven years 361 days it was up to 143 something proof um, which is very exciting i love seeing those those barrels get up in proof that much over the years
0: well, and then getting to try them uh, I, that, that first sip you get after the growth and the age is just right out of the barrel. There's nothing quite like it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely not. Definitely not. It's a unique experience. Cause you know, you've got that, the barrel thief and it just, it's a very specific uh, specific experience you can have. It's really cool.
0: It's a magical, it's a magical thing. Uh, so did you guys have a hard time getting back into market? Like you've got your liquid, uh, you are at the forefront of a lot of things, which is to your benefit, but you're also still at the end of that shelf space has been occupied by a certain number of people for the last little bit. Did you guys have a hard time getting your foot back in the market?
1: I mean, yes and no. I You know, we were... uh... We were obviously brand new to the business and you know, no one's ever accused me of being a natural born salesperson, at least not for regular things. But I will tell you this, I sure as hell felt like a salesperson when I have a product that has my name on it and I believe in it like I do. That's right. That's right. Totally changed the world uh, and my view of it. And so it was, you know, we did have a lot of success going to bars, restaurants, liquor stores. I mean, literally it was Charlie and I with a backpack and a bottle in it going to talk to people before we fully had a distributor um, here in Nashville. And, and it's that's just the way that it worked. And, and that I think endeared people to us. They, they listened to our story and they said, you know, you've got a great story. There's kind of nothing like it. And this product is good. So yeah, let's take it and let's do it. And so it was just the natural way uh, that natural course of things, how it had to happen. Um, and it worked well, but that's, that's exactly what got us the experience that we, that we had. And that's invaluable. You know, I'd, I'd much rather do that and learn that way, uh, and just feel it in my heart than, you know, take a class of how, how to sell product. Yes,
0: of course. You're never going to learn in a class what hearing no sounds like in real life. Like you can, you can read all the books you want to until you're making eye contact with somebody in the middle of a cell. You don't really know what the scenario is. Yeah. something, something,
2: Something that was kind of funny is like thinking back to some of those old sales calls, you know, we were, we were pretty transparent about the fact that like, we're like, we need people to support us to help get us to the point where we can build our own distillery and bring things in house. And, you know, we are sourcing, working with contract distillery at this point. And, and I mean, I remember multiple people being like, uh, well, you know, uh, come back to me when you're distilling your own. They're like, we, we don't, you know, we, we don't, uh, buy products that people aren't aren't making on their own. I'd look at their back bar and be like, everything 75 percent of the bottles on your shelf are doing yep. the same thing they're just yep. not
0: being transparent about it the, the only difference was you guys are being honest yeah so, <laughs> and, so, so many bottles uh back there were with a, a story emulating yours but with none of the reality behind it
2: and so yeah but like we couldn't say that you know and didn't. And so, but it, it it was, it was quite frustrating to hear that at at times. And, and I think that ultimately probably most of those people that later were like, Oh my gosh. Um, but could have been on the ground floor. Yeah. Right. Um, but you know, we, we were fortunate to get some, some really good supporters and, um, and to grow our business and gradually get to, you know, where we are, which is really, I still feel like we're just at the starting line.
0: I mean, in, in the sense of whiskey, even with you guys being almost what 15 years in it's, it's still, there's still so much you can do. There's still so many places you can go like the sky's the limit. And now you've got shelf uh, geography. So you're, you're all over the country. Uh, And, and I am uh, looking forward to diving into a glass of this. So uh, we, you've been kind enough I have the classic and the reserve. Where would you say we should start?
1: I'd say start with the classic first.
0: All right. And now so, this is... Go ahead.
1: Well, yeah. So Nelson Brothers Classic. It's a bourbon. It's a high rye bourbon. And so this is... We have, we have whiskey from three different states in there. We've some from Tennessee, from Kentucky, and from Indiana, but they're all high rye bourbons. Um coming you can out smell the we,
0: spice off the nose. It's a it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful nose. Yeah. And thank by, you. by
1: the way, Andy, just before
2: before you go into it, I'd like to make sure to to um you know clarify that um, this is you know the Nelson Brothers brand is like celebrating sort of how we got started, you know and and which was with the sourcing and contract distilling and and that sort of thing, which is a totally different recipe and process than the Greenbrier Tennessee whiskey so I just okay. want
1: I just wanna make sure that those are are two separate things, yeah, yeah, good good call out there. So but what you have there is the Nelson Brothers Classic and then you have the Nelson Brothers Reserve, right? So Okay,
0: so so the Greenbrier uh cuz you've got Greenbrier whiskey on the shelf as well. The Greenbrier is the is the whiskey you guys laid down and the mm-hmm. the the Nelson Brothers this is your uh uh Pickerall special.
1: It's yeah, it's sourced sourced spirit for now.
0: Four slash contract distilled. Right. Hey, I, I love it. And I love that you guys have owned it all the way through, uh, showed faith in yourself and faith in where you knew the brand was going.
1: Uh, well, I, I don't want to keep kicking this can down the road of like letting you try it, but I will just say, you know, being honest and transparent about it in the early days, there were times where I was really nervous about it because of course there were like Charlie said, the people that were like, well, I don't know. I, I want to wait until you're making it. I don't want to support it until then. Um, And to me, there was always that fear of like, oh, God, are they going to are they going to believe in us or are they just going to think we're fakers or whatever? But, uh, you know, as the world has trended towards, it's just better, to be honest, like people don't really care that much. Does it taste good is is kind of the ultimate dictator. Uh, And so it's now I'm like, I don't know why you would say anything but the absolute truth. It's just.
0: Well, the consumer can be fickle. Uh, The consumer will cling to what they know because there's nothing to make them think that what they don't know is going to be good. So the longer the consumer has been drinking, the more that. Like like when, when Wes started doing the, uh, the, the barrel finished or, you know, Wes didn't start it, but Wes was one of the first people to get some heat for it. Uh, when you were finishing whiskey and secondary barrels, people were all up at arms about that. And when people were, people were sourcing, people were all up in arms about that. But then you realize that the product is freaking fantastic and that the rest of it doesn't matter. Like yeah. all of the things that you, cause they're already wrong. Everything I just said is wrong, like 15,000 different ways. So drink what's in the glass, enjoy what's in the glass and, and, and don't worry about it. It's all good. Uh, cause you're at the end of the day, there's good spirits being in, you know, produced and enjoyed. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that's, that, right. that's my, that's my, uh, soapbox for the day.
1: Yeah. All right. So uh, as far as what's in the product, like I said, it's about 25 to 30% rye in the blend because it is a blended whiskey. It's from multiple states. So um, this one, the classic is 93.3 proof. And we have an average of about five to seven year old whiskey in that. So being that high rye, like you said, you already got the spice on the nose, but uh, it's apparent in there all the way through. And the idea with this was just make it as versatile as possible. You know, whether you like a or on the rocks or in a cocktail, um it's kind of an everyday drinker.
0: The nose is outstanding. Like I absolutely love, uh, there's a sweetness to the nose that's rubbing up against the spice and the whole thing combined, it gives it like, um. there's like a, a cool chocolate I don't know if that is, I don't know if cool is the way to say it, but oh, there's a, a cool baking spice chocolate that I get off the top of this, almost like a, a, a peppermint patty kind of thing. Like right like off an, the very, like right an off Andy's the Andy's mints or something. But like, but there's a chocolate note there too, that's just, I'm enamored with. Interesting. Yeah. I always love hearing, uh, hearing everybody's feelings and, and
1: tasting notes. Cause they're just different for everybody.
0: Oh man. So uh, w- while I sit here and, and, and dive into this thing, could you walk everybody through the differences between uh, now everybody will tell you 10 different things. If you ask 10 different people, what is the difference between Tennessee whiskey and bourbon?
1: Okay. Glad you asked. Uh, so the difference is this. Okay. so. I'll put it this way, I'll start out with, I'll even add an extra element or layer here. So there's whiskey, right? And whiskey is like this umbrella term. And whiskey is basically spirit that is distilled from grain and aged in a barrel, okay? That's that's it. Then there's bourbon whiskey, which is, has to be made in the United States, has to be made from at least 51% corn, and has to be aged in a barrel that is both unused and that is charred on the inside. Actually I'll get even nerdier. I will also say bourbon cannot come off the still, the full batch at higher than 160 proof, cannot go in the barrel at higher than 125 proof, and in America at least cannot go in the bottle at lower than 80 proof. So those are the specifics of bourbon. Now. If the word Kentucky is in there, if it's Kentucky bourbon, that simply means it's bourbon that has been distilled and aged in Kentucky. Right. Tennessee whiskey meets all of those criteria of bourbon. So in my estimation, I'll go up against anybody on this. Tennessee whiskey technically is also bourbon. However, it's also Tennessee whiskey. So all Tennessee whiskey is bourbon, but not all bourbon is Tennessee whiskey.
0: And. Yes. And I, I, so, I agree with you a hundred percent. I've had people no, but no, Tennessee whiskey's Tennessee whiskey and, and bourbons bourbon. Like, yes, but if you break them down, they're all yeah. filling. They're all checking the same box. It's just a geographical uh, boundary between them.
1: Right. And so the main difference there is that, of course, Tennessee whiskey has to be both distilled and aged within the state of Tennessee right and it also has to undergo the charcoal mellowing process which is to say you know historically it's been known as the uh, the lincoln county process right which right. the way that i describe that at our distillery to people is in in our process we have chunks of sugar maple charcoal which by the way i have gotten the, the question what does that mean it just means that it is charcoal <laughs> that comes from a sugar maple tree the wood from a sugar maple
0: tree <laughs> Oh, I'd I can only imagine that. some of the question you guys have gotten. There are
1: no dumb questions, just dumb people. So, uh, so and, and we, we need
0: to be, we need to be considerate of them as well, because all of us <laughs> have fallen on both sides of that
1: fence in our lifetimes. Oh, more than, more than enough times I have for sure.
2: <laughs> I fall into that category every day.
1: Uh, uh, you can, uh, I can confirm that on Charlie's part. Uh, <laughs>
0: I love brother dynamic.
1: So what the, what that means for us is we, we have this vessel set up. And in fact, we have it in an old barrel. We took the heads off the barrel. We put a little stainless steel mesh kind of at the bottom and then packed it full of the sugar maple charcoal. And we just let our distillate run down and through that. And it it looks like a giant Brita filter, but it's our, our fresh whiskey off the still coming through that collects in a vat underneath it. Then it's ready to go into a barrel. Uh, once it goes into a barrel, you can technically call it Tennessee whiskey now, an interesting point about this is that there is no age requirement for either bourbon or Tennessee whiskey in terms of how long it must be
0: aged. It can the, be a day and it's technically one or the other it can
1: yeah, it can be five minutes um but the the kind of the extra port uh like portion of that is that if Once it becomes two years old, then you can call it straight bourbon whiskey or straight whiskey. Mm -hmm. Um, And once it is older than four years old, you no longer have to uh, put an age statement on it. And the kind of limiting factor on that is if it's a blend of whiskeys of various ages, whatever the youngest whiskey in the bottle is, that's the age by which you have to you know, deal with the age statement. So if the youngest whiskey is three years old, but you have mostly like 18 year old spirit, you still have to declare that it's three years old.
0: Which I love that. I, I love that. There's a, just an honesty to it that I, I I'm sure it annoys some people. Cause it's like, yeah, there's 17 year old liquid in here. It's like, yeah, but there's four year old liquid too. So it's like, I, I, I yeah. think it's just a nice little checks and balance of the industry.
1: Right. And, and also, you know, that's essentially the rule. But the rule, it doesn't prohibit you from saying 2% three-year-old and 98% 18-year-old. Of I mean, course, of, course, of course, I doubt people are
0: putting 98% 18-year-old whiskey and Might be a three-year-old in it, but, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, That's the beauty of blending though, because sometimes you'll have something that's like that perfect. uh, uh, Oh, it's just nice and crisp and young, but it's missing the volume of say maybe a 12 or 13 year old. So you add just enough, like uh, just to build a little volume, build a little uh, viscosity.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's, I find that so interesting is it's, there is something of like alchemy to it for me. I mean, like you can take two or three or six barrels that you love and you blend them together and they're not always going to be even better than, you know, than all of them by themselves. It may right. be much worse, but you can take stuff. I mean, it's, I, I'm no perfume maker, uh, but I, I believe I learned, I hope I don't Some maybe I'm just going to be one of these dumb people now, but I think I heard that within a lot of perfume, there is like the slightest element of this. is it like, uh, beaver musk or something like that it's like this gland of a, a beaver or skunk or something that's like a highly unpleasant smell but there's like the smallest bit of it in you know a large vat of perfume and it's all about the balance because right, the old right you know without the bad there is no good uh well it's, it's quote like an you, old Taoist
0: saying <laughs> philosophy major the um it, it, it's it's like the strongest rye may be too much by itself, but if you, if you taper it down with some sweet wheat, maybe you put a, put a little bit of that high corn in there too, so that you've got a nice mellow balance. Now you've got whiskey and now I'm excited. And now I'm diving in, I've been sniffing this thing. It's very fantastic chatting with you guys. I'm a bit of a history nerd. So thank you for walking me through uh, uh, the history of the brand. It is it's awesome that you guys have been able to restart Greenbrier, put the Nelson brothers name back on bottles and, uh, or put the Nelson name. Now it's Nelson brothers on top of it, back on the bottles and have it out in the shelves everywhere. Uh, while I, while I jump into this, did you guys have any problems getting uh, started in terms of some of those old Tennessee laws?
2: Um, yes. (laughs) Uh, you know, when we first started working on it, uh, there were, uh, only three counties in the state of Tennessee where you could legally distill and make whiskey. Um, fortunately, uh, you know, that law was changed. Was that in 09, Andy? Uh, yeah, nine or 10. Yeah. And then, and then not too long after that, there was, um, a law being put in place to codify the definition of Tennessee whiskey, which we were in favor of. It was kind of, uh, sort of misportrayed in the media a little bit. Um, but, uh, there, there were a lot of, well, there were some companies, uh, that were wanting to come in and essentially capitalize off the equity of the, the category of Tennessee whiskey. Um, and so uh, there was a movement to basically codify what it means to be called Tennessee whiskey, because there were folks that were wanting to basically make any sort of whiskey in Tennessee and call it Tennessee whiskey, like where you could basically call moonshine or or right, right. you know anything Tennessee whiskey. And we were like, well, dang, we didn't start this business to only right before we get to sell our Tennessee whiskey to have the the equity of the category be diluted completely. So we we right. fought to sort of uphold the um, the category of of Tennessee whiskey. And that which was by a the smart way smart move.
1: It was by the way supported by probably over ninety five percent of the Tennessee Distillers Guild members and the people who have you know the biggest stakes in that in that definition. So. Yeah, Yeah. that was a big thing.
0: Right out of the damn gate, this thing is... uh, I love the proof point that you've picked here. Uh, uh, I've been nosing them against one another, the 93 versus the 107, and it's just a great entry point to a day sipper. Like, this is that guy, he's got enough of that sweet Tennessee goodness in him that you could just sit outside with a cigar and hang out with this guy, and he's got enough going on that you don't like... Uh, get bored with him if that makes sense totally
1: sweet Tennessee goodness that was my college nickname <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh stg baby
1: <laughs> oh stg that was a different
0: Um, because then you yes. put him right up next to the reserve and it's I love going from the nineties to the hundreds because it's like a flavor escalator. You just kind of like, you see where it starts and you see where it goes. And, and, and it, luckily uh, you guys, it's so even, like it's such a balanced note that you're getting that it's like, this is just the heightened version of what you have in, in the, uh, in the classic.
1: Yeah, so the reserve, the the main difference is, you know, reserves a little bit older. So the average is probably seven to nine year old uh barrels in there. Um, and it's, you know, we're pulling from the same inventory of barrels, but you're exactly right. I mean, it's just it is kind of where the classic is headed with a bit more age. And of course it's a little bit higher proof too. So the 107.8 and that 107.8 seems you know, kind of ran. I mean, hell, so does 93.3. It's not just a flat 90 or a flat one hundred. So, but they're very intentional. I mean, literally we take we try at, you know, half a proof point at a time, like and taste the differences blind. And there is, believe it or not, a difference when you taste it blind and are really paying attention. So the, the 107.8 and 93.3, um, we arrived at those very intentionally and uh they just kind of wore the, the standout proofs for, for each of those blinds.
0: Oh man, this though, the reserve. Oh my goodness. I, I really like the reserve.
1: Thank you. So do we, we're pretty proud of that one. Mm,
0: It's too much robusto. Like there's (laughs) like a, a, a beautiful weight to it. Like the viscosity of this guy combined with the flavor profile Oh my. And yeah, I love we were, the you get the rye notes out of it. Like the rye is just freaking man. The 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 best part about a blend is that you get kind of the best of everything. You you know what I mean? So you're oh, getting that sweetness from the well. corn, you're getting that spice from the rye. Is there any it's so- w- yeah, go ahead. I was just going to ask, well, uh, uh, re- re- refresh me. You told me a moment ago what the what the three th- what what the what barrels you put into this are.
1: So, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, high rye bourbon from Kentucky, Tennessee and Indiana. Uh, that's what's in our inventory. And so, you know, the other thing is just for context sake and kind of education is, you know, just because that's what is the in the blend right now doesn't mean it's always going to be there. I mean, and again, that is kind of the beauty of the blend is that, you know, inventory changes as a barrel ages. It gets different by itself, you know, over time. And so we have to kind of tweak that like we have the flavor profile, that kind of North Star, the flavor that's in that bottle right now. That's our North Star. And so regardless of what our inventory does over time as it ages, we may have to tweak that blend a little bit so that we arrive at that same North star of the bottle flavor profile every time. Right. And so whether that means, you know, adding a couple barrels or a few proof gallons of, you know, seven year old barrels as opposed to nine or vice versa or different, you know, so be it. But it's to me, I, I, I refer to our inventory of barrels as our spice rack,
0: you know, that's that's an easy
1: analogy and it's
0: completely it is.
1: So you can make the same dish and the same flavor profile with a different spice rack, but you're going to use different spices in different proportions to arrive there. So,
0: well, I also think it's smart that you guys have the North Star mentality. Like some brands will, I want, and and, and there's room for everybody at the table. I don't think anybody does it. The nobody, everybody doing it differently is what makes all of them so good. But I think some young brands can go uh, this one expression is miles apart from this other expression, and it can confuse the consumer because there's not like a, a when you're standing behind your favorite team, there's normally uh, players that work well together, and uh, you know sports analogy. Uh, but if if everything's all over the place, then it's harder for a consumer to kind of trust that they're going to get the same thing when they go back each time. So I I, I like that you guys North North Star it.
1: Well, that's, you know, candidly, that's our philosophy on that has evolved over the years. I mean, when we first started uh, with Bellmead bourbon, that was our, you know, we did four barrel batches and that, you know, every barrel does not have the same exact amount of whiskey. It does in the beginning when you first fill it. But over the years, some barrels evaporate more than others. And so over the years, you blend four barrels together. One barrel may be half empty or half full, depending on how you look at it. And that's going to change the complexion of that particular batch. And so we had a lot more variability. And that's but learning from that is exactly why how we've arrived at this particular philosophy, you know, today.
0: And and to that point, everybody loved it. Like that's mm-hmm. what people looked forward to in that offering. Yeah. So there's there's yeah. no wrong or right. It's just I, I like that you guys have gone this way with uh, with this one.
1: Yeah, it helped us learn, too.
0: Of course, uh, you, you guys delicious, delicious whiskey. Also, Charlie, I love that hat. I, I think that is, uh, the distillery hat. Yep. And people can go tour the distillery in Tennessee. Can they not? Absolutely. They sure can. Every and day. you guys have expressions that you can only get in the distillery. Uh, I've got my eye on that 15 year rye. That sounds absolutely amazing. Killer. That was
1: a really excellent poem,
0: by the way. That you nope. just—I don't think I, you meant I, to do that. But. I'm a walking haiku sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Got my eye on that 15-year ride. <laughs> the longer I drink, the more I'll rhyme, and then it'll become slurring, and then it'll be like a a slur rhyme time kind of thing. <laughs>
1: Well, let's keep it going. Yeah. yeah, we we're we're in the middle right now of a big renovation and expansion of the distillery in the current current space and so when our new gift shop opens up, we'll have more consistently things that are available only at the gift shop at the distillery and that's set to open this upcoming spring uh, 2023. So, very very excited for that.
0: That's awesome. And that's one of those things I think people really like go like like a distillery is fun but a distillery where you can get things that you don't get every time you go to the liquor store. I think people just, they just love it. And it, 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 they build their collection with the stuff that they got that their friends don't have. And then it's also fun to come back and share it with people when it's like, I got this thing. Uh, We can't get it here. I had to go there. Let's all try it. It it kind of helps uh, build the mythology of the brand a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. It's a lot of fun. Well, uh, I have taken a lot of your guys' time. I always like to ask this question. I haven't asked it in a while, but I, th- I feel like since you guys uh, have a history, a family history in the business, uh, who would you put on the Mount Rushmore of whiskey?
1: Um, I Well, I'll go first. I think I have, well, I've got three. If we're going for four, I've got three. I would go, for me personally... I would put Charles Nelson, of course. Of course. I would put Louisa Nelson, of course. There you go. That's a good one. I would put Dave Pickerel. Of, yes, I would agree with you on that. And maybe Charlie Nelson.
0: There we Just go. kidding. <laughs> no, I don't know. Who. Big, big, call out to, <laughs> big call out to little bro.
2: Whoa. I don't even know what the... I, I,
1: whoa. <laughs> it was a joke. It was a joke
2: yeah <laughs> even the fact that you joked about that uh, wow andy <laughs> i think that might or be the get me a good thing. christmas
1: present this year
0: that's I right he's that's angling he's angling for something i think that's the nicest thing you've ever said even if it's a joke <laughs> hey i've got it on i've got it on tape i'll put it on loop and i'll send it to you yeah. that, that you can be your ringtone
1: We'll have it play at like a particular volume, just like a subconscious volume in the distillery at all times. Right. It'll just be pumped into the <laughs> barrels. Yeah. <laughs> um.
2: Do do you, does it have to be limited
0: to four? Hey, put whoever you want on there. It's your Mount Rushmore.
2: I mean, I I think Charles and Louisa for sure. Um. I mean, you know, I, I feel like uh, maybe like, well, <laughs> I, I can't steal that idea and put Andy up there. Oh, he's not going to boomer. Oh,
0: come on, Charlie. You're, Andy, put you up there. Myself. I'll carve myself annoyed. for
2: that. So are you. Um, you know, I, I might put like a, a nearest green and Jack Daniel. There you go. Andy? There you go. Um, a,
0: a real Tennessee Mount Rushmore.
2: Yeah. But I, I'd also maybe put like a, you know, Colonel Taylor, E.H. Taylor um, up there. Um, yeah, I mean, and did a lot for whiskey. Yeah, I, I'd want to. I mean, I feel like Dave should be up there too. I mean, Dave was like yeah. the Johnny Appleseed of the micro, like, he there completely was. There is. was you know, the the last couple hundred years or hundred years, whatever it is. And then he he helped sort of change the the game and the trajectory of it. And ultimately, you know, something I was gonna mention earlier is that like us running out of money ultimately years ago was to the benefit of the entire industry because then Dave, who was going to be just working with us full-time ultimately then became like the Johnny Appleseed of the micro distillery craft whiskey industry. And, uh, So that is the
0: best summation I've ever heard of his contribution. He really was the Johnny Appleseed of this modern boom. And uh, you you guys heard it here first. It was the Nelson brothers that made it possible for Dave Pickerall (laughs) to bring the goodness to everyone. You're welcome, welcome, America. (laughs) Well, Andy, Charlie, I, I I. feel like we didn't even we, we scratched the surface of the history we didn't even get into what you guys have been doing since you opened uh i can tell you the whiskey's super tasty i'm gonna have to go get a bottle of that green next make sure i put them all next to each other and give them an old sippy sip uh but i appreciate the time i wish you guys nothing but continued success uh come sit with me again we'll we'll, we'll dive into some more bottles
1: yeah i'd love to thanks so much for having us
0: all right guys good talking to you i hope to talk to you again soon There you have it everybody. That is this week's episode. I want to thank Andy and Charlie Nelson for coming on the show, for sharing with me some of that delicious Tennessee whiskey. It was a good conversation and I appreciate their time. Charlie is a good guy man. I've got ADHD as you could tell by the end of the episode. I uh, said something. I like his hat and what does Charlie do? He sends me a damn hat. How cool is that? He's a good guy. Him and Andy both. I thoroughly enjoyed talking to to them learning about how they've brought their great 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 grandfather's brand back to the market making that good green briar distillery whiskey that nelson brothers whiskey if you see it out on the shelf go pick it up you will not regret that you did thank you guys so much for coming on the show and giving me so much of your time i really appreciate it and that's all for this week, everybody. We have a lot of fun things in store. Next week, we have Paul Holes. If that does not sound like a distiller, it's because it's not. He is a cold case investigator. He's known for his contributions solving the Golden State Killer case. He walks me through what it is to be a cold case investigator. We drink some delicious Elijah Craig while talking about his book, Unmasked. It's it's wild, man. Like, like just he. Hearing what he does for a living, what he did for a living for all those years, how he helped catch the Golden State Killer. It was, it was a very cool conversation, and I can't wait to share that with you guys next week. So that's next week. We have more good whiskey distillers on the way. We've got Chicken Cock coming up in a few weeks. We've got Puncher's Choice. We've got a lot of good things planned, man. So keep coming back. If you would, please go hit like and subscribe on all of the things on Instagram, on YouTube. Uh, go find us on Spotify. Leave us a good review if you'd like to. If not, that's cool, too. Just come on back next week because we've got more more show for you. And now, if you would, please, let's raise a glass and kick some ass. My name's Jesse Jones. I'll see you guys on down the road. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.